Rinpoche will begin uh, this evening's talk with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama. So allow yourself to relax in a comfortable sitting position. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama. These arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? where and how you are. Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisattva, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind, Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an unmovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always quite exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit and we practice with sincerity, 
with sincerity and determination. We practice at home and now here in retreat. With our dedication and our aspirations often clearly felt and clearly known. And as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha on that night when he was sitting under the bow tree, unfabricated, unprompted, and mature at that amazing point in time. As we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within ourselves. It's actually inevitable that this will happen if we keep on practicing. So this evening we'll begin to explore the quality or factor of mind that the Buddha said was like a precious gem. Mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being a most essential factor of of awakening. And we'll look into mindfulness from two perspectives. That of your direct experience, your cultivation and prompting of this quality through your ongoing practice. And in this context, also recognizing the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings as it develops and as it takes root. And we'll also briefly touch into mindfulness from the perspective of its unfabricated, unprompted presence as an aspect of the mind, the heart, of non-clinging. The natural place of mindfulness in the awakened mind, the awakened heart. So as I mentioned, the Buddha speaks about mindfulness as being a precious gem. And that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation. The very conditions we have here on retreat. Mindfulness is a key factor for the mind, the heart, to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment in this case, meaning the letting go into awakening, letting go into liberation. So this factor of mindfulness. I uh, often think of it as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of enlightenment. In fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for awakening. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So, maybe a kind of male-female way of talking about it. So I decided to combine the two and uh, 
we could say that mindfulness is the chief mother. (laughs) And when it really begins to be established in us, it's the factor that lights up all of the inner and outer phenomena that we experience, as well as offering us the greatest protection in this life. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to remember. So breaking that word down, remember, reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. And I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget uh, to be mindful because of our strong, habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but in fact to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia, Years ago in a Dhamma discussion with some friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a very good question. It's become quite a common word these days, mindfulness. And with its common use, which is good on one level, but in another way, it takes out some of the depth, some of the potency of it is dissipated. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is this, just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a very powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness in relationship to the experiences that come through each of the sense doors. Being receptive to what is without the forethought of concepts or past experience or ideas of how we think it is or how we think it should be or how we think it could be. As Krishnamurti once said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. In the Zen tradition it's sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness opening the door to understanding the truth that sometimes appears so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. 
the Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in our old habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia, but to really meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come really close to see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a fixed or a a sticky connection. Mindful attention is clear. It's a fluid connection that lights on the object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. It's really this flavor of attention that allows a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'm going to repeat that. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. And of course, as you know, we pay attention to a whole range of experiences, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, eating. We pay attention to things that are pleasant and experiences that are unpleasant. Experiences that are maybe wonderful and maybe easy to pay attention to, as well as those things that are more difficult to give our attention to. We open to all of it. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not the, well, I could really be mindful if only I wasn't so restless. Or I could be, really, I could be mindful if there wasn't so much anger. Or if I wasn't sick. Or I could be really mindful if I felt better. Or if I wasn't so caught up in thought. Or if I wasn't so attached or attracted to pleasure or beauty. It's to be mindful of all of it. No parts left out. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action, living in the action of the body and the mind, living in the present moment's experience. So in a sense, we forget ourselves. We lose our self, so to say, in what is. So there's just what is, without adding anything or needing to add anything and without taking away anything or needing to take away anything. 
with mindful awareness we have the possibility of thinking of not thinking I'm doing this or I'm doing that the moment we think I'm doing this we're creating or recreating a sense of a separate self creating a separation a disconnection from the reality of the way of things and living in an idea the idea of I the idea of me and mine instead of living in the action I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic not the magic that uh, the magician creates uh, where they, a magician creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion pulls us into that delusion the magic and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion out of the delusion directly into reality and without it we're bound without it we're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things and caught again and again and again in our reactivity often to these assumed these not clearly seen appearances the result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality and again some words from Krishnamurti if we don't know what mindfulness is we're like a blind person in a world of bright color shadows and moving light <clears throat> and venerable Anilayo puts it this way in his book Satipatthana the direct path to realization he says as a mental quality sati represents the deliberate cultivation and qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness that characterizes the initial stages of the perception process important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind one of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is the element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them this technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects practicing in this way bare awareness of a hindrance for instance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence
no matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us, all of us want to be happy. And many, or maybe most of us, want much of our life experience to be permanent, ongoing, or at least deeply fulfilling. Or we want our life to suit our passing fancies, our expectations, our maybe heartfelt and deepest desires. And so consequently, most people spend much of their time and much of their energy trying to find this by trying to satisfy these deep desires through various external experiences by getting this or that or him or her or doing this and that going here and there or we try to find, we try to get a, an ongoing contentment and fulfillment through the constantly changing world of our senses and through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go, go on throughout our life. And some of the time, many of us know, at least conceptually, and maybe sometimes directly, that none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely, very closely, to see, feel, and know our experience directly. Our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. We practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Our practice is one of deep intimacy, we could say. The deepest intimacy with our own experiences which as practice develops, deepens and expands and matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware. Immediately and intimately aware of it whatever it is in the present moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? In this present moment? In this present moment? This is really a basic foundation in all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in, ex in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or 
what you might want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and true understanding, insight to arise, to simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. A number of years ago I was teaching a class, a weekly class in Taos, New Mexico, where I live on mindfulness practice. And at the beginning of each class, uh, once a week, uh, people would come in and share their experience uh, that they'd had in relationship to the uh, prior class the week before. So one, uh, one afternoon a student came in and said that that morning she had been watering her garden. She'd watered her garden hundreds of times before that morning. But that morning she said it was as though it was the first time she'd ever watered her garden. And she said it was amazing because she was present. She was mindfully present watering her garden. That simple. And then her mind took a big leap after she said this to us and she said, how have we survived so long in this world without being mindful? Terrible things are done when mindfulness isn't present. And we were all kind of taken by that, we could say. This great protection of mindfulness. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. In fact, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living at a distance from experience, actually living at a distance from life itself, which just keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going round and round and round. We're kind of living akin to our computers. You know, you push the button and out comes what's in there. When our buttons are pushed, out pop our conditioned patterns, our habitual reactions. Another way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life then through the filters of ideas, preconceptions, opinions, judgments, and maybe similar past experiences. So for instance, an an example that probably everyone in this room has had, you meet someone new and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them in relationship to the thoughts you're having about them. 
or how much you think you like them or how much you think you're attracted to them or how much you think you don't like them and how much you think you're not attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of someone else. So you see this person in relationship to similar qualities you're thinking about in another person. Or you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are. Or what you might want from them. Or hope you can get from them. Or hope you won't get from them. And the list goes on, you know. With all of this, you're not experiencing this person you've just met for the very first time, just simply as they are. And without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think, is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts, our habitual habit patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to see things as they really truly are. As though, like my student did that morning, she was watering her garden for the first time. And without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's sometimes called beginner's mind. And as an example of this, uh, a story about one of my grandsons. When he was two and a half years old, and he saw a pine cone for the very first time, and I happened to have the good fortune of being with him. His mother and I were walking down by the river behind their house, and this little two-and-a-half-year-old boy picked up a pine cone. He'd never seen or touched one. He smelled it. He looked at it, turned it every which way. He stuck his tongue on it, tasted it. He put it up to his ear. He did everything one could do with a pine cone, or really investigating, thoroughly investigating this pine cone. And then his mother and I, like a good grandmother and a mother should, said, that's a pine cone. <laughs> and this bright, interested little boy looked up at us with kind of a quizzical question on his face and said, pine cone like a good boy should, and then went back to his investigation, his direct experience of pine cone with this fresh, open, beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or maybe relearn, to bring into our life as a whole, bring into our practice. And it's transformative. Transformative and healing. One definition of these uh, teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. Well as in freedom from suffering, the suffering of confusion, of anguish, of fear. Freedom from the ongoing wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction freedom from suffering. 
and this is a quote that I found once, I don't know where it came from, I don't remember where I found it, but I like it, so here it is. (laughs) One who is awakened, who has taken the medicine of the teachings and practiced meditation and healed the sickness, is one who is freed from suffering. So there are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. This evening we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such, not one's ideas or one's interpretations of it, And of course there are many and varied uh, and specific uh, aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And all of us here are very aware that one of our primary uh, practice orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. And Venerable Vivekananda spoke about some about that last night. And I have to say, just because I think um, there can sometimes be some misunderstanding about mindfulness of breathing or breath as an object of mindful attention, that it's not at all just a beginner's instruction. Not just a beginner's way of practicing. And maybe you already have gotten that. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible by uh, mindfulness of breathing is potentially profound. And in fact, making the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly a basic ground of mindful attention. I have at times been deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart, of the mind, and with what comes to be seen and understood, with a simple and careful attention to the very direct experience of breath. So just for a moment now, close your eyes. And let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling in the abdomen with without any self or with as little self as possible. And now just very simply notice, for instance, are you trying to control the breath? Trying to manipulate the breath?
and noticing without judgment, without any self-recrimination. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation directly as sensation, as movement, as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath, as Venerable Vivekananda spoke about last night, noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to its end and maybe actually noticing the ending, the cessation of the breath and the beginning of the next in-breath. Or we may sometimes simply notice the in-and-out breath itself, basically just this, in-and-out, which over time, with this relationship to the breath, it tends to cultivate an increasing quiet and tranquil and peaceful breath, as well as helps to facilitate an overall body-mind calm and tranquility. So the body in the body mindfulness of the four postures not our ordinary everyday quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity but a closer more intimate more ongoing and careful attention to the body in every posture standing sitting lying down walking and the various movements in the body of getting up and down flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting, carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body and the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be known just simply as standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking. Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, sitting, etc. Once many years ago, Sayadaw Upandita asked me in a practice interview, he asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful and noting walking, 
standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations. And for just a brief moment, I was caught by that question, which in retrospect, I think, was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But very quickly, there was a spontaneous reflection and a response. No, there's no woman, there's no man, or anybody known when I'm directly connected with a mindful, with mindfulness in walking or with whatever phenomena is happening. So I think a good question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindfulness, of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we might also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So for instance, the intention to, followed by an action or inaction. in the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, volition, begins. Where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way decide to stand or not stand or sit or lift an arm or take a step. If we think and act solely from the place of I, from the place of me, which is a place of separateness, of isolation, we will eventually, or maybe very quickly, experience some degree of suffering. As we pay a more intimate mindful attention to the subtleties of the actions in the body, and the experiences of interrelatedness within the body, we may begin to see and to understand the role of volition, where it comes from, how it arises, and not take it personally. As this awareness of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural non-conceptual understanding of the subtler cause of suffering that begins to take place, to take hold, which can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body. I had a student for some years whose name was Roy, very deeply dedicated practitioner right up uh, until his dying moment. And he died of uh, AIDS-related complications. And when he finally went into the hospital with these AIDS-related complications, I went and sat with him in the hospital every day for a little while. 
until he died. And so one day, sitting in the hospital with him, one afternoon as he was lying in bed, and at that point, there wasn't much left of his body. And he was lying there and on his back, and he stretched his arm up overhead, and slowly turning it, and looking at it really carefully, with a tremendous interest. And for a while, some minutes, And then in a very cool and very odd way, he said, Wow! With no aversion, no clinging, just wow. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions, just as, for instance, does the afternoon wind or a morning sunrise or the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. And choices are made. But in truth, these two are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered and intimate attention to the body, its movements, and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth. The next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests, actually it's not really a casual suggestion, but a direction from the Buddha, is giving attention to the parts of the body. As it's taught classically, all 32 parts of the body. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal organs and fluids. In your practice here, you notice parts of the body as they present themselves, as they make themselves known such as the intestine or the bladder or the heart or the lungs or maybe the liver, maybe the mucus, saliva, etc. And I have no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body so far during this retreat. But how often do you notice them in a mindful way? So for instance, how identified are you with the hair on your head or the lack of it or the hair on your body for instance how do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive process that goes on in there or to a moment or many moments of the experience of the heart how do you experience your skin this bag of flesh that holds 
all the various contents of the body. How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of ideas, interpretations, and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual solidity and identification with one's own body and other bodies. And this is from the Buddha. Abiding, abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides contemplating the body as a body. So just consider for a moment, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself, I'm a woman, a man. I'm thin or fat or not too thin or not too fat. I'm tall or short or average height. I'm good-looking, handsome, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I have dark skin or I have light skin. I have good skin, bad skin. My nose is large, or too big, or too small, or cute. I'm wrinkled, and old, and weak, or I'm young, and strong, and smooth-skinned. And on, and on, and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years, or just within a few days, or within just moments in our mind. Even though we engage a tremendous effort and energy and time in clinging to these various identities, there's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments, if that. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are.
Another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other form, no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, a kind of non-ordinary and powerful way to cut through the concept of a static solidity and the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. That if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it becomes a window opening us to the direct experience, uh, discernment and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of rupa, form. The reality of how it really is. How or what this body and every other form as well really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials, it's sometimes called, or the four great elements. Earth, water, fire, and air, or wind as it's sometimes called. And again, Sadao spoke some about this last evening. So the practice is in directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements of the body. And just to name them uh, for you, earth, the earth uh, element, the characteristics of the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The characteristics of the water element, flowing, cohesion, characteristics of the fire element as it's called, heat or warmth or cold or coolness, and the characteristics of the air element or sometimes called the wind element, supporting and pushing. So for just a, a few moments now, exploring a few of these characteristics together this evening in kind of a, maybe a unique way for some of you. Begin by relaxing in a familiar way also. (laughs) Many, much of it. Begin by relaxing and bringing your attention to the breath. Just for a few moments. And letting the mind settle and focus in a simple way. starting with pushing and begin by being aware through the sense of touch of the pushing in the abdomen as it moves with the breathing.
Now moving the attention up to the center of the head. As you breathe in and out, and see if you notice pushing in that area. Very subtle. If the pushing of the breath in the center of the head isn't easy to discern, return back to the pushing in the belly as the abdomen moves with the breathing. Wherever there's movement, there's pushing. So this evening, just spending a few moments uh, staying with the sensation of pushing, the characteristic of pushing. And when you can discern this uh, more clearly, concentrating on it until it becomes clearer in your mind, then move your awareness to another part of the body nearby and look for pushing there. And this can be done again and again in various parts of the body until wherever you place your awareness in the body, you can easily see and know pushing. And in some places it will be obvious, and in other places it may be very subtle. But it's present everywhere throughout the body. And now, for now, just letting go of the discernment of pushing. And we'll go towards discerning hardness. And begin by discerning hardness in the teeth. So bite your teeth together for a few times. Just bite them together, feeling how hard they are. Now relax your bite and feel the hardness of your teeth. And as you did with pushing, when you can discern hardness more clearly, try to discern hardness throughout the body in a somewhat systematic way, maybe from the head to the feet just as you did with discerning pushing. But take care not to deliberately tense the body.
And for now, letting go of hardness. And we'll look into softness. Gently press your tongue against the inside of your upper or lower lip to feel its softness. Now relax your body and practice beginning to discern softness throughout the body. You can always go back to the touching of the tongue to the soft inside of the lower or upper lip to remind yourself of softness. What is it? How it feels? We're moving quickly through this, but just to give you a taste. Now letting go of softness. And we'll next look into warmth or heat throughout the body, usually quite easy to see and to know. Heat or warmth throughout the body. And next, coldness or coolness. And a way to uh, explore this is feel the coolness of the breath as it enters the nostrils. So just put your attention there and feel that cool, coolness coming in. and then begin to discern coolness or coldness throughout the body. And letting this one go. All of the elemental characteristics that we've explored so far are known directly through a sense of touch. The next two elemental characteristics are to some degree 
known by inference as well as by direct experience. Flowing and cohesion, the characteristics of the water element. So experimenting for just a moment in discerning the characteristic or the quality of cohesion in your body. Awareness of how the body's being held together by the skin, the flesh, and the sinews. Blood being held in by the tissue and the skin, like water in a balloon. Without cohesion, the body would fall into separate pieces and particles. The force of gravity which keeps the body stuck to the earth is also cohesion. If cohesion still isn't clear experientially, then you can uh, pay attention to just the qualities of pushing and hardness. And eventually you might feel as if the whole body's kind of wrapped up in the coils of a rope. Now, letting this exploration go. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? This body in its elemental nature. Essentially, no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly um, not something we have much of an opportunity to do uh, in a retreat setting such as this. But uh, the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Certainly the possibility of insects, maybe birds, maybe other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants, trees, flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose, or to just deconstruct and decompose. So consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. 
I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as they as and after uh, they die and once when I was um, on a retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod where we rented a house for a couple of months to practice together I had the uh, great good fortune maybe it's um, only good fortune in the world of Dhamma practice but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach (laughs) so every day for a month I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a while every day observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay which in this particular instance was happening uh, quite quickly because um, of it being helped along by the many seagulls who uh, found the seals decaying flesh to be delicious food this daily practice during this month-long retreat was a heart-mind changing experience for me on many levels Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and who is the uh, senior western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah he tells of a time uh, when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and he had asked to be able to spend um, part of a day practicing in the city morgue and because he was a monk the authorities let him go in although um, somewhat reluctantly and he said that all of his sense doors which included his conditioned mind uh, were fully challenged or I think he actually used the word fully assaulted he said that the first thing that hit him was the smell he said which drove him almost drove him to run out the door but he just stayed mindfully present and he said little by little it became tolerable just a smell just a scent he talked about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this the package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and in his heart as he took in the various stages of decay all around him and he mentions that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts as he put it which uh, he found at first quite puzzling didn't understand what that was and then very quickly he realized that the bloated body that was in front of him could explode any minute (laughs) which he said he dearly hoped would not happen (laughs) and it didn't (laughs) while he was there (laughs) anyways and he said that when he went back out onto the street that he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart it isn't about being morbid or kind of strange in some way all forms, all rupas living and non-living are mortal and we're so attached to forms our own form and all sorts of other forms 
And for many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant, unrecognized desire for attachment to. For instance, forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us or just simply in relationship to familiar forms. And I think what actually is strange and kind of amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change and won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in us, in our heart, in our body, in our mind. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? It can be helpful to check in now and then to see if you're practicing in ways that are really truly moving you towards understanding, towards insight, truly moving you towards wisdom and the realization of the heart qualities of metta and compassion. Practice that's subtly or maybe more overtly rooted in wrong ideas or misconceptions or misperceptions can become quite deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us all along the way of our practice, maybe for years. So a good question you might ask yourself now and then is, am I looking in the right place and in the right way? for the happiness that I'm seeking. Mindfulness is kind of like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of practice, we find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning, the path and its fruits emerge both in unique ways and in universal ways for each of us we discover the treasures of the truth in perfectly natural ways through our own direct experience. This great treasure hunt yields the healing, beautiful, and liberating treasures of the way of things. And so we learn to know when mindfulness is established in us. And we learn to know when it's absent. In closing this evening's talk, I'd like to um, read a wonderful and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that, in fact, we can give to ourselves anytime. It's called A Single Excellent Night. 
let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached instead with insight let me see each presently arisen state let me know that and be sure of it invincibly unshakably today the effort must be made tomorrow death may come who knows no bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away but one who dwells thus ardently relentlessly by day by night it is in her or him the peaceful sage has said who has had a single excellent night and let's just sit together for a moment Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.